Greetings, I'm John Duvall. Welcome to another Truth Factor discussion. We'd like to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us for this time period of factoring the truth of God's Word into our and hopefully your daily life as well. We are currently in our study of the book of Romans, and today we will be considering Romans chapter 5. Before we do that, just kind of bring you up to speed. We have two folks not with us today. Paul is sick, so we need to remember him, and Shelton is busy with personal affairs that he has to take care of. Uh, but we did coerce him. We sent him a, fe- a fresh batch of drugs to get him to where he is um, reliable, and that is Mike has agreed to join us today. He- <laughs> Mike has been recovering. Well, what, Mike, what, if you don't mind saying, what was the surgery you had again? I had uh, my left knee replaced. Okay. Now, did you have a choice of a right knee or a left knee, or did they limit you to yes, just another left I knee? Did. Both knees, both <laughs> knees, they tell me need to be replaced. So I took the left side first because there's more complications there. And with this recovery and rehab, I've decided that to lose weight, exercise, go ahead and get another injection of lubricant. I'm going to avoid another surgery at all costs. Could they have put a right knee in place of your left knee? I don't know. It, it's working pretty well, so I think they got it right. Okay. I, I really, even on the left. Well, good. Mike, I'm glad you're able to join us today. <laughs> I appreciate the time. All right, so let's see here. Um, so... Oh, um, as I mentioned, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5. Real quick, since Paul's not here, let me tell you how you can participate in today's study if you would like to do that. So we are, well, there's a wrong button again. There we go. We are present on social media in several different ways. The first one, as you'll see there, as it cycles on the screen, is you can contact us through questions. Send them to questions at email. (laughs) I may restart today's study. Email us at questions at truthfactor.com. There's our email address, questions at truthfactorlive.com. One more time, we finally got it right there. Um, You can also follow us on Facebook, search for Truth Factor Live. You're probably already watching us there. If you're not, you're probably watching us on YouTube, which is at Truth Factor Live as well. Uh, We would invite you to um, follow us, uh, choose to specifically follow us on Facebook, but on Truth Factor, um, on our website, Truth Factor Live, on YouTube, I have one more mistake, and I'm going to throw the whole study out the window today. <laughs> Not really. But YouTube, you can subscribe to our Truth Factor Live channel and then click the bell button for notifications. Okay, enough of that. Let's move on with today's study. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is picking up with, um, as it's divided up for us from chapter four, he's picking up with having just proven that we're justified by faith, not by the works of the law. He used Abraham as a very specific example of that in chapter four. And so that's what our previous study was about. If you haven't looked at chapter Romans chapter four yet, um, after we're done today, feel free to go back and view that study. It'll be on or within the playlist there on our YouTube channel. Our website, truthfactor.com, does have an archive button that you can click, and that'll bring up the, the playlist from YouTube as well. But anyway, where we're going to pick up here in just a couple minutes is he now builds upon the idea that we are justified by faith. 
Um, and in the course of this chapter, he's going to talk about several aspects of this, um, why this is possible, and he's going to talk a little bit about grace with that. But ultimately, he's going to show the you know how far man had to be brought in order for man to be saved. You know, he will make the statement here that you know for a righteous man one might die, for a good man someone might scarcely die, but Jesus came and died for the sinner, for the ungodly. And he'll kind of illustrate through the use of Adam's sin to kind of show how far we have been had to be brought forward, if you would, through the blood of Christ in order to be saved from our sins. So we're going to divide our reading up here. And let me grab the outline, gentlemen. I failed to do that in all the post um, discussions there. We're going to look at the first five verses first with this. And uh, Tom, I think what I'll have you to do here in just a second is read for us Romans chapter 5. And we'll be looking there at the first five verses. Romans 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that our tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. All right. Thank you, Mr. Tom. We're going to take a minute here. And there is a specific question that I'd like to ask the chat room to consider. And we'll try not to step on that course during the course of our study. Um, let me bring that up there. That was last week. Okay, so the chat the question for the chat room is, why does hope not put us to shame? According to verse 5. I know there are, there are probably other reasons you could find. But according to verse 5, why does hope not put us to shame? All right. So, Tom, I'll go ahead and present this to you first in the course of our study since you, you read the section for us. We know that justification comes by faith. That, that is clearly established within the scriptures. But what else in verse 2 does Paul say comes by faith? Uh, hope. We, we, we have a hope and we rejoice in hope for the glory of God as a result of, as a result of faith. Yeah, that's right. Um, you, you'll notice there, and I'll bring this up on the screen one more time here, talks about, first off, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got peace with God. And then verse 2, through whom also we have access by faith access. into this grace in which we stand. And as a result of that, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Um, Paul, you know, Tom, Paul says a lot right there in regards to what motivates us as Christians to remain faithful. Oh, yeah. Oh, abs absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, th these are, uh, you know, the interesting thing about Romans is these are broad terms, uh, you know, broad terms. That, and one of the things we got to understand, Paul's not dealing with the specifics of, you know, for example, uh, the, the specifics of what our faith is. He's not dealing with the specifics of everything associated with being justified. 
Well, or even the hope that we have from that standpoint, he's just tying them all together and he's making the distinction. And this is the whole point to remember in Romans. He's making the distinction between uh, the fact that we are uh, saved by faith, which has to do with our attitude, trusting God uh, over uh, the idea of thinking that that works save us. And we talked a little bit about that last week. And that's the whole point that he's getting at in this entire section is we need faith in order to be saved, and it's available to everybody. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Um, this next one, this idea here I want to that we're looking at, Brian, I, I want to present in your direction. So Paul has just talked about the, the grace, being in Jesus Christ, and the rejoicing in hope, and the glory of God. He says there in verse 3, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. And, of course, he builds upon that here within our text. So what I was wondering about that is, according to what the Apostle Paul is saying here, why should we glory in our tribulation? You know, it's a neat idea here that he's telling us that it's so good to be in Christ that even even bad things have a have a positive spin and specifically here he says it brings about patience and uh, or perseverance and perseverance leads to character and character leads us to hope uh, this is almost uh, the exact same statement made by James in James 1 verses 2 and 3 when he talks about uh, our tribulation gives us patience uh, which leads uh, you know gives us this idea of something we can grasp onto so so in Christ even tribulation produces good things and that's a really remarkable thing to think about. You know, I agree with that. Um, something that comes to mind is the Hebrew writer. I think it's in Hebrews 12, might be 13. But he talks about the chastening of the father and how the father chastens those whom he loves. And really, when you look at the context of that, and, and I remember when I first started preaching, and, and I've heard a lot of preachers kind of take this position, um, it's the disciplining of the church that God uses to discipline us. And, and so whenever we've done bad and, you know, God will, will rebuke us so forth through the church and things like that. But when you look at the context more closely, Brian, it almost seems like he uses the trials and hardships that we face to make us stronger. Indeed, I, I would say that that would be precisely it. And it's one of the things that separates us from those in the world that their tribulations produce nothing. Their their suffering uh, only gives them a taste of what what is 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 ahead of them in eternity. Our tribulation actually creates for us that reward in eternity. Yeah. So it's really kind of uh, you know people always talk about it. They hate to rent because when you're renting, you're throwing away money, and th and that's the difference between the unbeliever and the believer. We're we're making a payment towards a mortgage to, towards something that's a uh, uh, greater, and we're not just throwing away our rent money as the world does with their tribulation. Yeah, that's a good yeah, analogy. Yeah, and, yeah, and you know something else, uh, Brian, to think about with this is, you know, you mentioned we know the future of those who reject God, but how many people are there in the world today that uh, don't believe in God, and they think that all there is to this life? What does tribulations mean to them? You know, asking the question, why am I going through all this garbage? You know, you know, uh, uh, there's just absolutely nothing fair about what I'm dealing with. And it's for nothing. And uh, and uh, so, I'm, I mean, so you can even look at it from the standpoint of as the world is going on. Uh, uh, the hopelessness 
you know, that's associated with a life without God and without, without a meaning that goes beyond this life. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, Mike, one thought I'll throw in your direction. The yeah. verse 5 there, he says, um, I'll bring it up there. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, in your somewhat moderated, medicated state. <laughs> no, you're fine. You are, you're doing well today. That pain pill wore off an hour ago. Oh, did it? <laughs> do you have any thoughts on verse 5? Other than I just do. the sheer hope that it promises us. Well, I, I, I do. And Go I'll ahead. tie this clear back to the first chapter of Romans. If you'll notice, from verse 1 through verse 5, you see a process that places us into Christ and into the church. We're justified by faith, which is obviously an obedient faith. Can't be just a belief. You have to act on that faith. That faith provides the peace with God, and it's all through Christ. Verse 2, that peace brings us with this faith access to the grace, God's unmerited favor, wherein we stand, so therefore it's a foundation, and allows us to rejoice in this hope. Now look at Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, and see if that doesn't correlate. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, says Paul, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but now here's the key to it. For therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness or right wayness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, what's the gospel? But the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. And if I have faith in that gospel, then I have hope of the resurrection of the dead to the glory of God. And that's the hope I believe Paul's addressing at verse 5. I agree with that. And I think that was very well stated. Very well stated. And it's what keeps us going no matter what trials and persecutions we face is what drives Absolutely. us through that. Yeah, that's right. Um, one thought real quick before we move on, and, and um, I probably shouldn't open this can of worms right now. So since it's a can of worms, I'm going to throw Brian, throw it Brian's direction there. Uh, I, I, now, I had not really thought about this until just now. And sometimes my wife says, you need to think a little bit longer on things before those spontaneous momentary bouts of self-imposed inspiration. Um, but you, you notice Paul says here, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Would you think that maybe that is an interesting parallel in a sense to John 16, beginning verse 7? where he talks about the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. Kind of a double-sided coin there, maybe. You know, I do think, uh, I do think that they actually are meant to be parable, are parable, parallel. Um, I, I would agree completely. And I, it is it, it, what's really neat about what you're saying is that on the one hand, the conviction of love for those who seek after God, and on the other hand, the conviction of sin for those who do not. Uh, you know, I'd like to add a little more, but I think for the sake of time, uh, we won't go too far. But I, I do think there's something really 
remarkable about that characteristic that when we think of the, you know, we talked about this before, and I know we don't want to go too far into it, but we think of the work of the Holy Spirit through the Scripture and what He accomplishes in the hearts of men. Uh, he either hardens the heart towards disobedience or He softens it towards obedience. And, and that constant concept of, of the message of the Word of God is, is a remarkable thing to think about. It, it is amazing. Yeah, it really is. Um, okay, I appreciate that. That's that You did that very well. You know, no, no problems, no issues, nothing like that. So, <laughs> but it it is something to, when you study, and like I said, I hadn't made that connection before. But the Holy Spirit can do that, convict the world of sin, of righteousness, judgment to come. Then the Holy Spirit can be poured out in our hearts by our the love of God can be poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who He's given us. You know, kind kind of a, a dual role there. And you were quoting a passage, weren't you, in reference to? Um, about the hardening of the heart or the softening of the heart? Uh, well, not not necessarily. Or, I, I In my mind, I'm really kind of thinking of the parable of the soils where, you know, the hard heart, the, the seed just sits on. But, uh, yeah. you know, okay. the, um, um, I do think there is a, I, and it's now it's left me, but uh, put me on the spot. But um, I was thinking more in Mark 4 in the parable of the soils. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Makes sense. All right. Let's go ahead and move on into the next section there. Do we have any comments in the chat room? I wanted to check that before we continue. Okay. Um, so no one answered our question. Why, why does hope not put us to shame according to verse 5 was the question. We do we do have an answer. We do have we do. an answer. Uh, it just popped up. Yeah, oh, yeah Gregor just popped up. So. Well, Brian, would you mind reading? That? I will. Gregor bailed us out again. Appreciate that, Gregor. Uh, your answer is, if our hope is based on God's promise and word, it is based on the foundation of the universe. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. His spirit, the word, is our foundation. So uh, that really is a pretty neat uh, way of putting that, the foundation of the universe. That really is a, a hope that's, you know, more real than anything around us. That's right. I think when I put this particular outline together, I want to confirm this. I was referencing the English Standard Version. And I believe the English Standard Version uses... Let me grab that real quick here. And that could be the wording, yes. English Standard says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love... So that's why I asked the question the way that I did about shame. The New King James Version renders it, hope does not disappoint. And so that's... But yeah, Gregor, love the answer. I appreciate that. Appreciate that. All right, Mr. Tom, I'm going to have you to read the next section, if you would. And let's pick up in verse 6 and read down through verse 11. All right, uh, bear with me here. Okay. You're good. Okay, okay so it, it reads, for, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Is that right? Hold on. Yep. yep. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, 
much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. All right. Thank you, Tom. Let's go ahead and bring the chat room question in for this particular section, and it is this. From verse 10, what did Jesus' death and life do for us? So that is from what verse 10 has to say. What did Jesus' death and life do for us? All right, so Tom, since you read that, I'll throw the, the first question more in, in your direction there. In considering ver both verses uh, 6 and 8, Okay, verses 6 and 8. Paul refers to we are still weak and we are still sinners when Christ died. Do you think Paul was talking about all of mankind, including God's people, the Israelites? And this is a question I kind of had when, when reading through this. Uh, and, and my answer to that would be yes. Uh, uh, isn't that the point of chapter 3? You know, I mean, Paul established that early on. We're all sinners. And... Uh, and, uh, you know, the idea of weak being here, you know, while we were still weak, the whole point is uh, we were not able to take care of this by ourselves. You know, a, a word that comes to my mind when I think of weakness is vulnerability. Okay. And, and, and the fact that they were vulnerable. And, I mean, uh, there's a sense in which that applied even more to the Jews than it did the Gentiles, if, if you can, you know, make a comparison and so on. Uh, God chose them as his people, and on more than one occasion, he established the fact that uh, they were by no means the strongest of nations. You know, they, they were weak. Uh, you know, as far from a worldly standpoint, they were insignificant from a worldly standpoint, but God chose them anyways. And, and, uh, and that's, really, that's really the point to understand. You know, Jesus, while on earth, uh, I did not call. To, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And of course, he meant everybody. But uh, in the context where Jesus would speak things like that, he was dealing with many in an audience that uh, looked down upon certain individuals as being inferior, namely those who were who they defined as sinners. And maybe they thought that the poor and the the common people and whatever were were but beneath them. And so. That's the whole point that is being made here. And, and then you've also got the contrast uh, uh, according to verse number seven. And I don't know if you're going to get into that in a minute, the, the righteous versus the good. Yeah, that'll be our next question. Yeah, okay, so, so we'll deal with that then. So, so anyways, th that would be my point here. And, of course, that builds into the, the uh, answer to that question as well. Okay. Well, the re reason why I asked the question the way that I did is, you know, Paul's already talked about this, the insufficiency of the law as far as, you know, we're not justified by the law and so forth. But think about what Paul says for just a moment. If Paul is talking about all of mankind, and, and I don't disagree with that, um, although I think his point may be more to the fact that when Jesus Christ came, he came in the world, like think about it, Paul was still a sinner when Christ came. Although he hadn't died yet, Paul was still a sinner. Uh, Peter was a sinner. You know, all the people of the world were sinners and weak, although the Jews were abiding by the law of Moses like Paul did. So back it up a little bit. Think about Hebrews chapter 11. We talk about the hall of faith there. This would apply to Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses. Um, 
What's that? Rahab. Yeah, Rahab. Um, everybody listed in Hebrews 11, at one point, still without strength, were considered sinners by what Paul is saying here. Now, I don't know if that really means anything in particular other than it helps us to keep in mind that nothing was sufficient. So bring in Joel, Jeremiah 21, or Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, um, about the need for a new covenant and a better sacrifice. Yeah. So. Yeah, and ultimately, the point the point that we con we constantly want to hammer home, we cannot save ourselves. That's exactly right. Period. Yeah, yeah, and and that is, you're right. That is Paul's point today. Now it almost seems like a moot point, Tom, because we are so many years past the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary. You know, but even today, when you're when I was raised by parents who became Christians when I was very very young. But that doesn't make me any better than the individual who was raised by parents who were members of a biker gang, <laughs> you know, and, and did bad stuff. Not all biker gangs do bad stuff, I guess, you know, but <laughs> they did horrible stuff. And that person came to a knowledge of the truth. There's no difference between the two. All we were guilty of sin and needed the blood of Christ. Um, now, let's see. Mike, let me... Um, pop over to you there to you okay. regarding verse seven just a kind of a real quick thought here what are your thoughts on verses seven and eight um here do you think paul is kind of comparing how man would behave versus how god would react or what, what's Absolutely. your thoughts on that yeah yeah there were some people uh you know for for a righteous man let him die as a martyr is, is the way you might look at the first part of verse seven scarcely for a righteous man will one die righteous man is put to death he's kind of a martyr he's established as kind of a hierarchy and you think and, and mankind would think well he died a righteous man and needs no salvation from any other and yet for a good man some would maybe dare to die some might put their life on the line to save a good man but in God's sight verse 8 he demonstrates his love toward us it wasn't a matter of martyrdom in the sense of let Jesus be the great man, as man would think of him. God actually elevated us, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, think as well that under the patriarchal law, as well as the law of Moses, we know that sacrifices of animals was involved in both covenants yet the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. Mankind may have loved man as much as possible, and yet regardless of sacrificing yourself in behalf of that man or that righteous man uh, granting his life uh, to some martyrdom, it still wouldn't save him. So God commended his love toward us, that is, he, he multiplied it toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, and I'm going to include Jew and Gentile in that, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. There's not another religion known to man in which a man sacrifices his life to save his followers. He may sacrifice his life for the martyrdom, for the prestige, for the heroism, but he doesn't do it to save the followers. Jesus Christ is the only one 
who died to save those who will believe in him and obey him. And the proof that Jesus is the Son of God, not a son, but the Son, is in the resurrection that God gave to Christ. It's in that exact same hope that we stand. Verse 5. Good point. I appreciate that. Appreciate that very much. Tom, did you have a thought? Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I've always found interesting about these two verses, this goes along with, with everybody, is, you know, looking at it from a worldly standpoint, uh, or the way that the world views people, you know, you th what's the difference between a righteous and a good man here? And, 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 I, and I know as brethren, uh, uh, we actually debate this, you know, sometimes in class when you get into a discussion here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm of the thought that the way that it's written here is the good man is, if you will, better than the righteous man. Uh, uh, when I think of the righteous man as it's used here, I'm thinking of somebody who does just enough, you know, uh, just enough to get by. Maybe the, uh, uh, you know, the Pharisees who patted themselves on the back, you know, because, oh, we keep the law and all that. But, but that's as far as they went. A good man would be somebody that would go a little bit further. Uh, and, and I always use as the illustration, the old, the old fashioned butcher. I know it doesn't happen today, but the old fashioned butcher who, if, if you, uh, asked for a pound of meat and a pound of hamburger, uh, he'd pinch off that little bit at the end to make sure you didn't get any more. Whereas the, the, the good one, you know, he'll just leave it there or he may toss in a little bit extra. Uh, that kind of a thing. And and when people have that good character, people are more willing to sacrifice for somebody that is just doing just enough to get by. Yeah. And of course you tie that in, but Jesus, uh, his, his standard, this is what, like, like Mike Pop pointed out, Jesus, even somebody that's not righteous, somebody that's not good, Jesus was willing to die for them too. All right. I appreciate that very Interesting thoughts on that. Um, let's go ahead and take a moment and come back to the chat room question. There we go. Brian, did we have a comment? And I want to go ahead and answer the chat room question before we actually look at the final two verses in the section there. But did we have an answer? We did. Gregor Hinckley gave us an answer. Um, Gregor said, though people were enemies of God due to sin, Jesus suffered and died to pay for our sins, giving God a justification reconciliation of our sins. Jesus' resurrection proves God can resurrect us. Okay. The, the And I, I didn't present this before, but the question was, or just now, from verse 10, what did Jesus' death and life do for us? And I think Greg Gregor gave us a very good answer to that question there. But let me open it up now to to us. And Brian, since, since you were talking last with that, um, <laughs> Based on what we see here in verses, um, what we just looked at there, verses um, 9, 10, 11, what do you think Jesus means when he says we shall be saved by his life? So uh, I, I kind of, I'll even go back a little bit to Gregor's answer. The idea that Jesus's death would satisfy God's wrath, uh, Jesus's resurrection is the idea that we might, uh, so first of all, we might be delivered from God's wrath, but that doesn't necessarily put us into a covenant relationship with God. It's his blood or his life that puts us into that relationship with God. We even, we even make this uh, every week in our memorial of communion, 
where we use one emblem to, rec to represent his death, his body. That's why we take that one first. And then we use the second emblem, his blood, to represent his life. You know, there's, the Bible would say there's death in the flesh, there's life in the blood. So we even use emblems that reflect this idea of his death bringing us one thing, that's to put to death enmity, and his life bringing us another thing, a covenant relationship with God where we can be sons of God and children of God, and we can be brought back to God. Um, and both of those things are, are two different, two distinct things that, that it seems as though Paul would want us to consider, not just that we're reconciled by his death, that God, God's anger is, is satisfied, but that because he lives now, we have access to God through him now because he now lives. Okay, that your last statement there, I, was going to, I want to ask you about that. I'm glad you said what you said. When it says we shall be saved by his life, is it talking about his life prior to his death or the life after his death when he was resurrected from the grave? The place we're going to go in chapter 6 is going to tell us that uh, when we were baptized, we were baptized into his death. Mm -hmm. But then we also were raised in his resurrection, in his life now. So the very fact that he's alive now is the very reason that we are alive now. Because being baptized, it wasn't just to his death. Uh, we put to death our old self in that death. But when we arose, uh, Romans 6 is going to tell us we arose to life in him because he's alive. So we are in Christ is what okay. uh, the word of God would teach us repeatedly. And, and uh, that's what you were saying a while ago. The, the death of Christ by itself might have been a sacrificial, would have been the sacrifice for our sins. But unless he arose from the grave, there could be no true reconciliation. You know, yeah, that ultimately, like I said, that, that new covenant relationship with God that gives us an adoption by grace, that's built on the idea of his life. You know, the, yeah. the idea that our sins can be put away is, is dealt with by his death. And our adoption by grace is given to us by his life by his life, his resurrected life. Okay. As John said in the book of Revelation, blessed are they that have part in the first resurrection. Yeah. If we're not in that, thus in Christ, then we have no hope. Yeah. And that our rejoicing is in his life now. That's right. I mean, I'm not discounting the, the physical life he lived because he laid the foundation for the covenant that he would die for. Mm -hmm. But his resurrection from the dead is what enables our resurrection from the dead. Well, and Peter said he left us an example that we should follow his steps. But his steps went from death to the burial to the resurrection. And now our life is hidden in Christ, or in God, in Christ. Colossians 3, uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 5. Okay. All right. That's a good point. Um, any other thoughts, uh, Brian? Yeah, I have one more comment. Uh, one of the important things that comes out of these verses, uh, verses 1 through 11, is the concept of God being our enemy. Uh, several years ago, uh, I had some Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, and they were saying, you know, the Old Testament prophets spoke of a great peace that was going to come on mankind. And they said, if you look around the world today, there is no peace. And so I took them over here to Romans 5, and I said, well, uh, wouldn't the greatest peace necessarily be with our greatest enemy? And so the question is, who is our greatest enemy? And then we read Romans 5, 1 through 11. And I said, clearly, the greatest enemy any man can have is God. And when we are in sin, we are God's enemy. So the greatest peace, the peace that the prophets of old constantly talked about, wasn't a peace between men like no warring nations or things like that. It was the peace between God and man, the great reconciliation. And so mm -hmm. I, so then I pointed that out to him and I said, uh, therefore, 
Is there any doubt that the greatest peace the Old Testament prophets could have spoken of was what Christ accomplished on the cross? And they, they, they didn't have a response to that because I think a lot of people don't appreciate the idea that when the Bible speaks of peace on earth and peace, uh, uh, you know, the idea of the, the you know, the, the, the wolf and the lamb or the child and the snake uh, imagery uh, of the Old Testament, that that's speaking about the characteristics of God and man being enemies and how it is that that reconciliation through Christ would would put away that enmity. Yeah. And the fact is we are enjoying that now. Yeah, exactly right. Well, yeah. Yeah. Right now we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Yeah. 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 And that's only how we can walk in fellowship with him. You know, true fellowship. Yeah. All right. Good answers, good comments. I appreciate that. Let's go ahead and jump into our next section. We have roughly 20, 25 minutes remaining. So I think we could um, manage to get the rest. About 20 minutes remaining, so we can get the rest of this in. Let's see. Mr. Mike, are you where you can read? I am, but it's out of the, the old King James. I don't know whether you can suffer that or not, my friends. I <laughs> All right. Where's that? John's I'm too not old amused. To memorize me. anything else? That's the reason for that. <laughs> hey, I've got, I've got a I got a couple of shelves full of Bibles, and several of them are the King James and the American Standard versions. On my, they all got dust on them, don't they? I just. <laughs> <laughs> um, I tell you, what, if you'll give me just a second here, I'm gonna, I will switch over to the King James translation there so we can go. follow along, and. It's not King James down at, down at the office. It's all right. It's all right. I've only got about four dozen Bibles. So what I'm about to share on the screen will look a bit uh, odd because it is the Strong's coded version. So um, it 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 um, uses a gray font where the words are instead of black. But it it won't it won't affect what you read, Mike. It'll be just that. Where where do you want me to go? Twelve through sixteen. I think we're going to go to the end of the chapter, Mike. We'll just go ahead. All and right. Tackle Here that, and then we'll come back to it. Yeah. Wherefore, as by one man sinned, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Whereas by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered 
that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign, un, reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. All right. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you reading that for us. I'm going to turn back over now to the New King James Version. Something I noticed in, pre in preparing for this study, um, I like the way the ESV breaks the passage up better than I do the New King James translation. What I mean by that is the New King James puts verses 13 through 17 in more of a parenthetical statement. And I've always considered it that way because that's what I've mostly studied out of. But the ESV doesn't put it into a parenthetical statement. It, it, it seems to read more as one context. Um, mm -hmm. I think it reads a little more smooth, smoothly that way. Mm -hmm. But regardless, though, that's neither here nor there other than for studying purposes. Let's start with the chat room question. And I'll get to where I can share that with everyone. There we go. And so the question is, what does verse 12 tell us that verse 19 does not? Is this relevant to what verse 19 is saying? I have a very reason, a very specific reason for asking that question. What does verse 12 tell us that verse 19 does not? And is this relevant to the understanding? Um, I need to take a phone call real quick. No, I don't. They hung up on me. That's good. <laughs> I may have a phone call coming in here in a minute. And if so, I will, um, I'll pause for just a second. Um, so let's go ahead and get through this next section here real quick. Um, verses 12 through 14, Brian, I'm going to have you, if you would, we'll, we'll um, look at this kind of together. And then I want to get your thoughts on this a little bit. So beginning there in verse 12, as Mike read a while ago, the apostle Paul makes a point that through one man, sin entered the world, death through sin, death spreads to all men because all men sin or for all sin um he then talks about the law the until sin until the law sin was in the world but sin is not imputed when there is no law so what is paul's point in verses 12 13 and 14 as relates to sin the origin and the role of the law and before the law <laughs> so um <coughs> excuse me verse 12 is really going to be something we're coming back to here in a few moments about the characteristic of how sin entered the world through a man, uh, not so much, and, and, and maybe, you know, I have a rule about hard passages. And the first rule is, what is it actually not saying? And uh, it's actually going to be important to understand that it's not saying the concept of original sin or something like that, where because Adam sinned, all men are counted as sinners based on that sin. And we know that for a, a number of different reasons, uh, most of which are the idea of the accountability of sin. Ezekiel chapter 17 uh, talks about the idea of uh, the sins of the father aren't passed on to the son. There's, there's a sense of accountability that God only holds to the person who sinned. And frankly, that's really the last statement in verse 12, that all sin. But, but let's actually get specifically in verses 12. He starts off with this theme that sin became known to the world. It came to the world because of a man's transgression. And then all who sinned participated in that. And that's, you know, all men. Now, now then he steps out and he tries to make the point to say 
that even though there wasn't a law of Moses from Adam until Moses, there was still sin. And then he says, because there's no such thing as sin without law, therefore there was law. So the idea is, you know, uh, John would say sin is lawlessness or the, the absence of walking according to God's rules. So if there's sin in the world, there is a law in the world. So he's kind of kind of trying to make the case that even without the law of Moses, there was still law. Um, you know, like Abimelech was told you're committing adultery uh, before the Ten Commandments were given back in Genesis, whenever he took Sarah um, you know, and God told him this is another man's wife or, you know, the, the different things about the characteristics of men that, that are found in the in the book of Genesis before the Ten Commandments tell us that there was law. So there was law uh, and therefore there there was sin even before Adam and Moses. So death still reigns. Death is still in charge because the wages of sin are death. Uh, we uh, haven't come there yet, actually, uh, but we're going to be making that statement very clearly in the next chapter. But uh, death is still there. Adam to Moses, there's still the wages of sin are imputed to men, even if you didn't do the exact same thing Adam did, because there was more than just that one law. In other words, Noah sinned uh, getting drunk, let's say. But that wasn't eating of the fruit of the tree that was forbidden. So he says it might not have been the likeness of Adam, but it was still sin. He still sinned, and therefore death still reigned. So the accountability of the law was, uh, of a law, was still there. So I don't know if that, uh, I hope that made sense. Like I said, it's kind of a complicated statement, and it's, sometimes it's easier to say what it's not saying. But I don't want to go too far into where he's going with this, because I know you want to uh, answer that a little further on of how one man's sin all followed that pattern, and now one man's righteousness offers a pattern towards righteousness. Oh, I can't you're, hear you, John. You're muted, John. I is that better? Yeah, yeah. I hear you. Yeah. I think I think your explanation is a good one there because it sounds like the, the point that Paul is you know Paul says because all sinned. Now wait a minute. What about before the law of Moses? And he covers that. Under the law of Moses, he covers that. People outside of the law of Moses, he covers that. You know, so I think that was, you know, a good explanation there to that one. Um, were there any other quick thoughts or comments on that section before we uh, look at the 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 um, the next one? All right. So the next section, as we read well ago, and let me double check on my outline here is verses 15 through 17. And so, uh, Tom, I will uh, throw this one at you. And, of course, if anyone's got any comments, don't hesitate to jump in there. In verses 15 through 17, he takes this free gift and he kind of compares it to the offense by saying it is not like the offense. Or more, I should say, a contrast is being developed here. Contrast between the free gift and the contrast between that and the offense. The difference between um, without the grace of God, if you would, and with the grace of God. So, Tom, what are your thoughts on verses 15 through 17 and the point that Paul is trying to make here in this comparison between the offense and the free gift? You know, if I were to summarize it up in one word, it would be... Uh, it would be the word that I would use to describe the book of Hebrews. And that's the word better. I, 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 and I, I really think that that's the whole point. Paul, Paul is making a contrast. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, when you, when you think about uh, 
you think about what Adam did, Adam and Eve did, it's very, very serious. You know, I, I mean, you know, I, I'll often say in a, in a sermon, you know, what's the big deal about eating a piece of fruit? You know, I mean, I mean, it's a whole lot more than that. I mean, I, I mean, it's a matter of obedience versus disobedience. And when you think about everything that has happened to this world as a result of that piece of fruit, that, that Eve and then Adam ate, and look at where we are, and you see how terrible it is to disobey God. But on the other hand, the offering that God made through Jesus to take care of that sin, it's better. It's just better in every conceivable way. And what Paul is doing in this text is he's contrasting. You know, he's making a comparison. Oh, in Adam, the world's messed up. In Christ, it's made better. Or uh, in Adam, it's messed up. In Christ, he took care of that which Adam messed up, or, or at least made that available. And so I think ultimately that's the, that's the differences, and you've got a whole bunch of different examples of it. He's just making contrasts. It's a checklist. Yeah. And in, in many of these things, I guess you could spend time talking about each one of them, but he's just going back and forth and just making the point. You know, in, in, in a, uh, <clears throat> the free gift is better. And that's why it's not like the offense. That's a good point. The offense brings death. The free gift brings the grace of God through Jesus yeah. Christ. Um, Life. Yeah. yeah. Judgment comes because of the offense, which brings condemnation. The free gift brings justification. Yep. You know, so you kind of got the contrast of what the outcome. For if by the one man's offense death reigns, those then much more than those who receive abundance of the grace and the gift of the righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So yeah, I mean it's you're right. It's all one is clearly better. Look at the outcome of this one versus this one, you know. And if it wasn't for this one, we wouldn't have this one. But because of the offense, we have the free gift now made available. Yeah. Well, John, if I may, sure. We go back to a comparison between King James and New King James, and that helps us a little bit. At verse 11, he closes with the word, now receive the atonement in King James. The new King James, I, I believe, says reconciliation. Well, reconciliation means what atonement has been made to mean at one again. And there was a time when mankind was one with God, united with him in obedience and, and understanding when Adam and Eve before they sinned. Because Adam and Eve did sin, that reconciliation or that at one was divided. Now the only way to be reconciled to God or made one again with him is through obedience to Christ. And with that obedience to Christ, grace, experience, patience, hope, eternity if we remain faithful unto death. Okay. All right, good point. Good point, Mike. I appreciate that. Any other quick thoughts? All right, so let's real quickly here as we are approaching the end of our time, consider now verses 18 and 19. And I think, Brian, Tom, you've already had your shot. <laughs> then come to Brian, I think. So, so when we look here at verses 18 and 19, I'll bring it back up on the screen here real quick here. So with everything we've said, we still have a comparison here. And now he boils it down even more so. You have one man's offense, one man's offense 
judgment to all men, resulting in condemnation. One man's righteous act came comes to all men, resulting in justification of life. So, Brian, what, what are your thoughts on verses 18 and 19 in regards to what Paul just said there? You know, it's a really important idea that, uh, that just as those who are, and I'm going to use the word disciple here to say a follower, those who are followers of Adam, who follow his example, who follow his, his pattern, which is to d- disobedience, find themselves in death. And those who are followers of Christ, that is to say uh, that they follow his example or they put on Christ, uh, they have the sense of, of a salvation. Paul puts it a different way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 45 when he contrasts. Uh, it's kind of neat the way he says it there. It's almost like there's, there's two men in the world, Adam and Jesus. Uh, Adam is, is what you follow if you want to be disobedient, and Jesus is what you follow to be obedient. And in that sense, uh, there's, if we follow Adam, we're lost. And if we follow Christ, we're saved. I really think to boil it down, that would be the simplest way to put that statement. Uh, 18 and 19, I should say. Okay. I like that. That's a good point. Um, and, and so you have to consider all that as you build up to verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Yeah, and, he's, so, and he's not saying there that, that I'm sinful because of Adam. Right. He's saying that, that be, no more than he's saying that, that it's somebody who's, who uh, today everybody is saved. I think Tom might have a comment about the universalist uh, view of that, but he's not saying every single person in the world is saved because of Jesus any more than he's saying every single person is lost because of Adam. Uh, the, the, those they're trying to make a parallel that, that the followers of Adam are lost, the followers of Christ are saved, and it's not that everybody, every human being, finds themselves in both categories simultaneously. Yeah. That's kind of ridiculous, in fact. Um, but, but that would be the teaching of original sin. That would also be the teaching of universalism. They would try to put us all in both categories. All right. As a matter of fact, let me throw it over to Tom real quick. And Tom, what are your thoughts on the, the idea of universalism uh, before I make a, a quick thought on it? Yeah. And of course, the whole idea of universal universalism is, is that God is going to save everybody. And, and, and that goes right down the line with, as Brian mentioned, uh, original sin. You know, and 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 what I would call pure Calvinism or, you know, I mean, uh, and the reason I say pure Calvinism is, as I know, there are a lot of people out there that respect Calvin and even the doctrine of what we would call Calvinism, but they don't adopt it to the degree of which it was actually developed. I'm saying there are those that do, uh, but but universalism, we're all guilty of sin. We're born sinners. We can't do anything about it. And we need the salvation of Jesus. And as a result of that, there are those who say that that Jesus, because he died for everybody, everybody is going to be saved. So it really doesn't matter what you do in this life. Both of those are the absolute extremes. And this text clearly is not saying that when you put it in context and the whole thing is. And, and when I say in context, read the book, <laughs> the, the whole book of Romans clearly contradicts that idea. So obviously the point Paul is making is Jesus gave the remedy for the problem that Adam caused. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. What, what Mike was, uh, what Brian was saying just a second ago, my only thoughts on, I've often thought about this about verse 19. If the first means for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. If that truly means that everybody was made a sinner from that point forward, 
then why did it not, when Jesus Christ died upon the cross of Calvary, immediately make everybody righteous? You know, if one exactly made it right. all, why didn't one make everybody righteous? I mean, it's... Yeah, John, you're exactly right. I mean, that, that would be the point if he were saying that everybody was made a sinner by, by Adam. Everybody yeah. was made righteous. They, they would both have to be true because they're both like figures. In fact, he said it earlier when he said... Uh, Adam is a type of Christ, uh, in yeah. verse 14, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's what he meant is, uh, that if one is true, the other is true. So, you know, either Calvinism and universalism are true and they both are contradicted throughout the Bible or neither of them is true, but, right. uh, you can't just pick one or the other. They both must be true or, or neither can be true. And, uh, since they are both contrary to what the Bible says, then neither can be true. To me, that's the only conclusion to draw. Yeah, but, that is the only conclusion, right? What what happens though, and, and we, we've got to hurry up here real quick. But what happens oftentimes is people build a theology on a verse, and establish a theology in concrete, and then every other verse in the Bible must be shifted to fit the theological viewpoint. We've seen that many times. Okay, so real quick here, the the final two verses, and then we'll throw it to the um, we'll look at the chat room question, and I'll just read this real quick. Uh, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Sounds like what Paul is saying there is, oh, hey, look, Brian, you're still on the screen. Wave, wave it, everybody. Um, <laughs> Brian, it, it sounds a lot like what Paul is saying, that God gave us the law so that sin would abound, so that death would reign, so that ultimately the grace might be given by God to eternal life. He's not saying you know, God gave the law for that person purpose, is he? Right. You know, it's interesting. Paul loves to throw you this really complicated statement. Then he steps out of it for a second in chapter six, and then he'll come back to it. And as he moves back into it, he's going to tell us that the purpose, part of the purpose of law was, we, we, we usually say to, to make sin sinful, to reveal the sinfulness of sin. It was to, uh, to expose the behavior of the hearts of men so that sin could be understood. And so that's uh, perhaps the best way of describing what he's trying to say, that the law entered so that, so that the offense might abound. He's really talking about the knowledge of offense, yeah. the, the concept of knowing what is right and wrong. You know, it's kind of like, uh, let me go back to the example of Abimelech. When God comes to Abimelech and says, Abimelech, you were with another man's wife, you're gonna die. There is God telling him the law and the violation of the law, the penalty of the law. So was, was Abimelech not sinful before that? No, but he didn't know. Uh, so yeah. the law brings about a knowledge of sin. It doesn't, and, and it makes sin sinful to the minds of men, but it, the characteristic was there beforehand. And that takes us back to what was the first five verses of Romans we looked at, or maybe six to 11. And then even, like you said, Romans seven, we'll kind of use that same, same idea there. Um, all right, go ahead. Any other thoughts or comments on this section before we jump to the chat rooms question or answers? Okay. Did we have an answer, Brian? We, we sure did. did. We did. Gregor Hinckley again. Let's throw a tough his. question. Oh, I thought. And so I appreciate that, Gregor. Uh, I thought that was a tough question. And I thought maybe we might not get an answer, but Gregor did. Yeah, matter of fact, let me remind everybody just in case they missed it, what that question was real quick. And then you bring in Gregor's answer. What does verse 12 tell us that verse 19 does not? Is this relevant to what verse 19 is saying? And I had this very specific reason for ans asking that question. So go ahead, Brian. What was Gregor's response? Gregor's response was, death entered the world through sin. 
that's verse 12. Then uh, through Christ, we are forgiven. That's verse 19. If sin brought death, forgiveness brings life. Through Christ, we live eternal. So he kind of put the two of them together, in effect, which is a good, a good point. But he didn't answer the answer I was looking for. <laughs> he didn't. So who's right and who's wrong? Tough teacher. Well, I see, read my mind. That's the. Is that it? <laughs> well, that therein lies the problem. When an individual gives an answer you're not looking for, that means in your your original answer may not have been right. Yeah, that's true too. Um, yeah. No, yeah, Gregor, we're with you. No, here, <laughs> just just. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Here's now. Here's the subtext behind what I asked, and we've already touched on this a little bit. Calvinism's Calvinists will oftentimes go to verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made oh, sinners. All right, they hit that. Anytime someone gives you that verse, take them back to verse 12. Because what verse 12 says, and it says it first, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. You can take that phrase, because all sinned, and plug it in verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners because all men sin. That, to me, that's the, that, that is, what verse 12 reveals that 19 doesn't, but it doesn't need to because it's already said it in verse 12 and it should be understood. You know, to be fair, Dan Gatlin just answered this in the Facebook chat and he, and he, he picked up your point. He actually said that what's missing is because all sin. So, you know, maybe, maybe we won't say you're wrong, John, if somebody else (laughs) saw what you were trying to say there. So we're, you know, I will assume, I will assume, that Dan typed that and hit enter just before I said it. <laughs> Actually, it probably looks like he might have. So. Yeah, with the, with the lag and everything, I, yeah, I, I would I would believe that. <laughs> all right. Well, we are now at the end of our time, and we all do have some local things here we got to deal with, so we got to bring it to a quick close. Any final thoughts or comments? Let's start with you. You already shaking your head, no, Brian? No, nothing. All right, Mike. Any thoughts? Final thoughts. This has been absolutely the best therapy for me. I've had three weeks. Great study. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks, Mike, for joining us today. Tom, any final thoughts? Uh, no, I, we're good. <laughs> okay. So, Brian or Mike, looks like you got to carry Paul's role in what we're about to do next. I'll be glad to. All right. Hey, listen, thank you so much for joining us for our study today. We really appreciate your, your presence via the Internet here. Um, If you are watching this at a later point in time and you have any questions or comments that you'd like to um, submit, feel free to send those to Truth Factor or questions at truthfactorlive.com or use our various social media uh, avenues there to drop your questions and comments. And we'd love to hear from you. Next week, we'll continue with Romans chapter 6. And I think, Brian, you've agreed to take that one, Romans chapter 6. Okay. And we'll do that next Wednesday. At 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. Noon Eastern Time. 9 a.m. Pacific Time. 10 a.m. Mountain Time. And that's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.